Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We've spent hours and hours talking about the divides in America and the world today. Red and blue divisions, class divisions, social sorting, urban versus rural, right versus left, and progressive versus conservative. But what if there was an overlay to all of this? One that, while not exactly putting us in neat little boxes, does help to explain a core reason for so much of contemporary division. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Michelle Gelfond. She's a distinguished university professor of psychology at the University of Maryland College Park. Her research into cultural norms has been cited in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Harvard Business Review, and other publications. She's the recipient of numerous awards and is a past president of the International Association of Conflict Management. Her newest work is Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World, Michelle Gelfand, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. First of all, define a little bit about what you mean by tight and loose culture. Sure. So, I mean, as you said, a lot of times we think about our divides in terms of very kind of superficial distinctions. And I wanted to know, is there a deeper cultural code that's driving our behavior? And so over the last several decades, I've been studying hundreds of cultures from the ancient Aztecs to Alabama, from Sparta to Singapore, uh, from the military to the Silicon Valley. And I found out through this research that there is a fundamental hidden dimension on which groups vary, and it all has to do with how strictly groups adhere to social norms. Norms are unwritten rules for behavior, and we all follow social norms heedlessly every day. But some groups are tight, and what I mean by that is they have strong norms, and they adhere to them. They punish people for deviating from them. Other groups are loose. They tolerate a wide range of behavior. They're very permissive. And it turns out that this distinction affects a lot of things in our lives, uh, from our parenting to our politics and from nations to neurons. And so the book describes, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, describes the journey that I took um, to discover this cultural code and, and why this distinction exists in the first place. How does this relate to people that, that even in a structure of tighter social norms, become the rebels? And, and what does that tell us? <laughs> well, I think it's a really good question. In the, in the United States, we tend to think, you know, that we should celebrate rebels and that, right. you know, we should break the rules and, you know, the rules are made to be broken. But that's just simply not the case in some groups where rule breakers could be severely punished. And what's interesting about um, this, this uh, distinction is that it arises for good evolutionary reasons. Tight groups in my research, whether they're nations or states or organizations or the working class, they tend to be more threatened. So they have a lot of threat that comes from, for example, Mother Nature. Tight cultures tend to have greater natural disasters, and, um, and they also tend to have more human types of threats, like high population density or invasions on their territory. And so in those contexts, when you have a lot of threat, from wherever it is derived from, it really makes sense to have rules in these groups to help coordinate action and survive those threats. And that's why we can think about why rule breakers are not appreciated in some contexts where rules are really helpful. When we talk about this idea of tight and loose, it's a little like, a little like the chicken or egg question. Are there social histories and political histories that then drive this movement towards tight or loose, or is it the other way around? Well, it's a really interesting question because in our uh, research, we studied objective threat, you know, that groups that have had invasions over the last hundred years evolved to be tight, or groups that face a lot of natural disasters, like Japan, has strong rules to help coordinate behavior. But at the same time, sometimes people perceive threat 
even when it's exaggerated and when people perceive exaggerated threat, it also tightens our minds. We in our own laboratory can activate fake threats, um, whether it's about terrorism or disasters um, or other types of um, fake threats, and it tightens people very quickly. Um, so I think it's important to realize that threat, whether it's objective or subjective, tends to tighten us. And of course, sometimes those threats can be artificial. I mean, it's what fascist leaders do, which is to define those threats and to amplify them in ways that allow them to have more control, to put in place tighter rules. That's right. I think that you just highlighted a really important principle, and it, it suggests that leaders all around the world, um, populist movements, are not being defined by some charismatic personality or some ideology. Really, in my view, they really are about cultural tightness. Um, when people perceive threat, whether it's real or imagined, they want strong rules and they want autocratic leaders. It's, it's part of our basic instinct to, to need that kind of structure to survive. But leaders all around the world, and it's not just now, it's been in, all across history, have amplified threats in order to get elected. And they also understand that they should target people who are already threatened. And then they ride that wave uh, to the White House or to other, uh, to, to other political policies. So it's really important to understand that this is a cultural logic that um, is being used all around the world um, in current politics. And as you look at different societies, different countries, different cultures with respect to this the rule makers and rule breakers, this tight and loose idea, to what extent have you seen the ability of, of groups to change, to move from one to the other and, and perhaps even back again? Yeah, this is a great question because in our research we can see somewhat of a Goldilocks principle, you know, that moderation tends to be best. The groups veer tight or loose for good reasons, like I mentioned, based on threat. But as groups get either really tight or too loose, they need to really recode themselves in order for more functionality. And we see that in some organizations. For example, in, in airline industries, you know, these, these kinds of um, contexts need strong rules to coordinate. There's a lot of safety issues. But places like United, for example, they needed to introduce some discretion after they had some major PR problems because they were arguably too tight. People were starting to follow rules without even thinking about them. And I call that trying to introduce some discretion um, into tight cultures, flexible tightness, to understand you need some balance. And on the flip side, you see places like Tesla or Uber that were starting to get too loose and arguably needed to inject a little structure into their looseness. Um, and so we call this structured looseness. And once we have this terminology, this vocabulary, we can start using it um, really to design our, our groups to be more functional. And, and this affects not just organizations, it could be in your own household. Um, you can think about how do we parent our children? Should we, what domain should we be tight or loose in? Maybe we're getting too tight or too loose, and, and we have to calibrate. Is it easier to move from one direction to the other? Is it easier well, to go from loose yeah, to I tight or I, tight I to think loose? You're a, you're a great cultural psychologist. In fact, it's, it's a lot harder to move from, from tight to loose. I think there's a, a general sense that when you've evolved to be tight, you stick to that kind of mode um, with greater, um, you know, over time, and it's harder to loosen up because it's had some kind of function in helping groups deal with threat. And we see that in our own research. We see that um, tight groups tend to have a lot of openness, so they're more open to different ideas, they're more open to different people, and they're more open to change. 
And, and, and on the flip side, tight groups have more order. They have, they're more organized. And, but they also have uh, more resistance to change, and they have resistance to people who might threaten that social order. So you could think about this tight loose trade-off as one that involves order versus openness. How does economic well-being fit into this and, and the degree to which this is part of or perhaps a subset of a kind of hierarchy of needs that people have? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because like, if we just think about differences in social classes, we often do think about the, these differences in terms of bank accounts. Like, okay, well, we know that some people have more wealth than others, but what we can, when we start really zooming into those differences, we see that they're really cultural. Um, for example, um, the working class um, in our research is much tighter than the middle and upper class. And part of that is that they need rules to avoid falling into hard living or poverty. And, and rules are really helpful in those contexts. Um, in our research, um, you know, you could see that middle and upper class have a safety cushion. If they can afford to break the rules, they can afford to be more adventurous. But if you live in a context where you might fall into poverty, you might be in a dangerous job, you need rules in those contexts. And we see this remarkably happening very early. Um, even three-year-olds from the working class and middle class tend to react to norm-violating puppets differently in our laboratory. Um, for the middle-class kids, they laugh when they see um, people violating the rules. At least they're more tolerant of the puppet when they're violating rules in this, in this study that we did. But the, middle, the working class has learned, even by age three, that rules matter. They're really functional. So I think we can move beyond just economics and think about this is a threat that some groups are realistically facing. So to a large extent, fear is a powerful motivator. That's right. I think when we think about fear in terms of culture, often it involves collective threats. You know, it involves our ability as humans to coordinate. You know, what's really powerful about social norms is that we really need them. I mean, imagine, uh, you know, you going outside of your house and people driving on both the right and the left side of the road, or imagine people you know, not saying hello when you see them or, or when you answer the phone or them taking food off your plates or, or, or imagine just, you know, this kind of normlessness that would be totally dysfunctional. We need norms to predict behavior. Um, and in some contexts, um, we need stronger norms because we have more threat, because we have more collective fear and we need to coordinate even more. So I think it's important to start thinking about this as an invisible social force that, is guiding our behavior without us even realizing it. We take norms so for granted, and, and we really need them. It's interesting. We were talking, you know, joking a little earlier about rebels, but in a way it's kind of what teenagers do, which is always <laughs> testing those norms, testing those rules. Well, I think it's an interesting point, but it's also a very American point. Right. Um, because, I mean, arguably, you know, the youth are, are looser in all cultures, but, you know, we in the United States, you know, kind of give our children that kind of permissiveness. And, and of course, that varies by state, because we know some states are tighter than others. Um, but clearly, um, again, we celebrate kind of rule-breaking in the United States. Um, we can, you know, as a, as a country that is separated by two oceans from other groups um, who hasn't been worried about Mexico and Canada invading us for centuries, like in other contexts around the world, you know, again, we can allow our teenagers to test uh, and explore, they, because they don't have these kinds of threats in general. I mean, depending on, again, social class and states. Um, but again, you know, as parents, even um, as we're uh, raising our children, we have to think about what's the right balance in our households for Titan I'm raising two teenagers, and arguably that's a very threatening context. There's a <laughs> lot of things that, 
you know, could really harm your teenagers, um, and, and especially in American culture, drugs, um, sex, um, you know, you name it, you know, falling into the wrong friendship group. So, you know, I think parents are trying to calibrate what's the appropriate tightness and looseness in their households, because we know that being too tight is problematic for raising children, but being too loose and, and, and not being structured is also problematic. So it's, it, it's exciting as a parent to talk about it with kids. <laughs> I use this terminology a lot with my my kids, and we ask, actually negotiate, you know, what domains do we need to have stronger norms in and punishments, and what domains can we be a little more permissive? Right. I mean, the punishment is an interesting part of it because that goes back to this idea of fear and consequences. It's the reason we put up with, with you know, the TSA at airports, I mean, essentially. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I think you could see after 9-11 here, we started to tighten up in context where we feel like we have to really monitor behavior, to make sure that we can get rid of defectors. Monitoring is really a key part of tightness, having people watching you and making sure that people behave themselves. We do know, for example, that in tighter cultures, I've sent research assistants around the world to kind of look around city streets and document how many security cameras are there, how many police are there around. And tight cultures have more order. They have people watching them more. They, um, and, and looser cultures have less monitoring. Um, and, you know, I think when you have more monitoring, you feel more accountable and you behave in ways that are more norm-abiding. What's so interesting, too, I, I talk about it in Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, is that, you know, there's context even in, in our country where we really arguably need to tighten up. Um, and one of those contexts is the Internet. You know, this is now like an incredibly wild, wild west to a world we're living in online. And many of us spend a lot of our time online um, and, and we're really living in a different world, but this world is rather normless. <laughs> there's not a lot of monitoring. When there's no monitoring um, and punishment for bad behavior, you see it just spreads like wildfire. And that's a basic psychological principle. Having social presence, having monitored, makes people um, more um, cooperative and, and abiding by norms. So I think, you know, as a society, we can think about, you know, what domains do we need to tighten in? What domains might we want to loosen in? Uh, and that's, you know, I think a key issue for us um, as human groups is, is, is calibrating the norm strength that's needed. What does your research tell you with respect to the nexus between tightness, looseness, and creativity? Yeah, that's a great, a great question, because when you think about it, people who break the rules, they also tend to be more creative. <laughs> um, allowing that kind of latitude allows for, you know, ideas to kind of come rolling in. And there's a very strong connection between looseness and creativity. Um, loose nations are more creative, our research shows. Loose states have more, um, more patents per capita, more artists per capita. Um, we even see, as I mentioned in the working and, and middle class data, that uh, the, the middle class is far more creative when we bring them into the laboratory than the working class. So again, this speaks to kind of this trade-off of order versus openness. Um, in context where there's a lot of threat, there's more order, but, but less openness, and that includes to different ideas. Um, the, the other thing I would say, though, that's really interesting, we're starting to think about this in organizations, is, you know, it's great to create new products, but you often, and you need looseness to do that, but in order to really implement something, you need tightness. <laughs> so there might be these kinds of tight, loose, ambidexterity we need in groups and organizations, uh, because, you know, the most creative groups are not necessarily the ones that can implement those ideas. Talk a little bit about the way in which you see this as kind of a predictor, both for, for cultures and for countries. 
Yeah, that's a great question because I think that, number one, like we tend not to think about culture as driving our behavior. It's so omnipresent, but it's invisible. So we don't tend to um, use it when we're trying to, you know, become more effective in a variety of different contexts, whether it's, you know, sending people abroad. Let's just say, like, we're sending executives to other cultures. Often it's the case that we send people abroad based on their technical expertise, their, you know, how good they are at their particular business or their task. We don't think about their cultural intelligence and are they prepared to move to a tight or loose culture. And in some recent research that's being published in the journal Psychological Science, we could see very clearly that it's really important to have a match between people's personalities, their own tight and loose mindset, and, and the place they're going, um, because that culture match really matters a lot. So, you know, I think we can think about this as, you know, predicting who's going to be more effective in, in an intercultural context or in a negotiation that's taking place across cultures. How happy will one be when they transition from their job to another job that will have, you know, might be tighter or looser in terms of its structure and the organization. Um, these are all questions that I think we can, you know, really actively be mindful of and, and, and really think about um, how to use tightness and looseness to, to be more effective um, in our lives. I also think that another principle is that, you know, we know that when people really crave social order, when things are starting to really break down, when things are becoming normless, we can predict that those groups are going to yearn for tight leaders. Um, and, and, you know, ISIS is a good example of this. It sounds very strange, but actually in the places that ISIS took over, there was a great degree of disorder in these contexts, in Mosul, for example, where in, at first people welcomed ISIS. They provided the social order that was seriously lacking in those contexts in Iraq. Um, they provided social justice. They provided basic services that were totally lacking. And my colleague, uh, Munkif Dagir, was tracking the attitudes in these areas um, at the time and, and documenting how unsafe people felt, how much they felt people were not following social norms. And then tight groups take over those contexts. Um, so we have to be aware of places all around the world where disorder invites uh, very tight, autocratic, and extremist types of groups. So that's just another sort of idea about foreign policy that, you know, we often um, don't think about the cultural element that drives um, politics. And, of course, there's many factors that drive ISIS or drive Arab Spring or drive leaders like Duterte or Putin to power, but culture is certainly not one of them. In those places where there are rigid social norms, where the control is tighter, is there or do you find more of a yearning for a looser culture? You know, it's such an interesting question. Um, and I think our assumption all the, a lot, and this is, you know, I think in general, a lot of people are ethnocentric, all of us think that our way of doing things is, is the way that actually is the better way. And in fact, Herodotus, the ancient Greek philosopher, noted this in his travels and the book, The History, that all human groups seem to be ethnocentric. They looked at other practices with, you know, they thought they were so strange, and they were not just strange, but they were bad. And, you know, I'll just give you one example. I think once we start thinking about, you know, the fact that countries and groups operate in different um, environments that might require stronger rules or allow for more permissiveness, we, we can have more empathy. And Singapore is a good example. You know, it's about 20,000 people per square mile. That's a lot of people packed in to one place where there's been also other threats and there's not many natural resources and there's tremendous diversity. And, and also there's just a lot of people per square mile compared to a place like, you know, New Zealand that has 50 people per square mile. And at one point, um, Lee Kuan Yew, um, he, he banned gum from becoming, uh, coming into the country, large quantities of gum. 
And people can look at that and say, that's really ridiculous. How can you ban gum? Like, that's so, you know, that's really um, something that's just really uh, aversive. Um, but, you know, what happened in Singapore was so many people were square mile. People were throwing the gum on the ground. It was causing massive problems with transportation, with elevators. And finally, they said, you know what, why don't we just get rid of gum? Because it's hard not to have the temptation to chew gum and toss them on the floor. <laughs> and so I think when we, it's really important that we step back and think, you know what, sometimes not everyone will be looking for freedom you know, all the time. It, it, you, some places you're willing to sacrifice freedom for security. Um, and so I think, again, it's about balance um, and that we, we need to understand that you know, having some monitoring and, and, and some tightness in some contexts is actually good. As we look around the world, which of the two is the natural tendency today to move towards tighter or looser? It's such a good question. I mean, I think it's such a dynamic type of cultural template, you know, um, on the one hand, you could think, you know, groups have loosened over time in general because we've had less threat as a species, you know, um, we have, you know, far less violence, as Steven Pinker for, uh, points out, we have far less um, threat of famine or of disease, so I would suspect that in general, you know, groups have actually loosened up over millennia. But at the same time, you know, we could see shifts in tightness happening all the, all the time. We see shifts now in the United States where, you know, people feel um, very threatened and they are tightening up and leaders are promoting that. And we see that in many places in the world that are really starting to tighten up. Um, so I think that it's really something that changes over time and it can go through pendulum shifts. Um, so there's no, like, sort of linear trend, as in, in, in my view. Michelle Gelfond, her book is Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. Michelle, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.